MSW Media. Hey, it's Kimberly, host of the Start Me Up podcast. If you like your politics with some loose talk and salty language, you're going to love my show. I interview the coolest people like Mary Trump, Kathy Griffin, and DNC chair Jamie Harrison. The Start Me Up podcast has an easygoing, casual style and a strong emphasis on left-leaning politics. We also have frank discussions about sex and more than a few spirited rants. Just visit patreon.com slash startmeup or wherever you get your podcasts and start listening today. law is not just some lawyer's turn of phrase. It is the very foundation of our democracy. The essence of the rule of law is that like cases are treated alike. That there not be one rule for Democrats and another for Republicans, one rule for the powerful, another for the powerless, one rule for the rich, and another for the poor, or different rules depending upon one's race or ethnicity. To serve as Attorney General at this critical time is a calling I am honored and eager to answer. So yeah, now it's clean up on aisle 45 time. And for a long while yet, it is going to be clean up on aisle 45. Hey, everybody. Welcome to Clean Up on Aisle 45. It's Wednesday, 420, and this is episode 66. I'm your co-host, Allison Gill, and with me, as always, is the numerological numerological genius, Andrew Torres. <laughs> I was going to say, those are just numerological jokes, right? Like there, there is no other reason why those numbers are funny to anybody in any way. Yeah, I wish it was right? episode 69, right? I know. 420. Nice. Right. Then we would just have I could have come back with a nice, but yeah. Get some right. AOL email addresses and go from there. <laughs> but, uh, you know, we are the show that offers you more than just uh, numerological themed jokes. We also uh, have a big shout out for uh, a couple of new patrons this, this past week. So, uh, as always, we want to thank all of our patrons, but we want to thank our new patrons, Nathan DeRozier. Matthew Smith, Cakemeister, mm, Joan mm. Qualls, and Stephanie Farron. Thank you all so much for supporting the show. Dude, I want to be friends with someone named Cakemeister. Cakemeister, right? Yeah. I enjoy cake, and it's well, 420. <laughs> if you'd like to join them, head over to patreon.com slash aisle45pod, A-I-S-L-E, 45-P-O-D. Sign up for as little as a buck an episode. You'll get this, this, stream, you get this ad-free feed. Right. And then you'll get to come to our little Zoom calls and trivia things that we do every now and again and sometimes some bonus content as well. Yeah, absolutely. It's it is I can't think of a better way to spend a dollar than to, you know, keep you and I doing this show that we love. Yes. And uh and with that in mind, uh let's get on with the show. All right. First up, okay, so we're up to our eyeballs in court filings <laughs> today. Yeah. And I wanted to go over um, all these, Andrew, because you know when the court filing drops, I text you and I'm like, give me a link because I don't have, uh, you know, links to stuff. And you go to Pacer, you download them, you put them up on the Open Args uh, website link, you know, to so where people can can read them because they're some of are some are hilarious, 
Some are very serious. And we have a few of each today. Uh, all right. So update in the Sussman case. This is the Durham special counsel appointed by Barr who's looking into the oranges of the investigation. We've been covering it all the way up to current, as you know. So everyone should be caught up at this point. But as we know, a while back, Sussman's lawyers filed a motion to dismiss the case on the grounds that Sussman's alleged lie to the FBI wasn't material, right? And we talked about materiality when that filing came out. Yeah, that's exactly right. So the the argument was uh, that the purported lie wasn't material because it didn't have any impact on, on whether the FBI opened the investigation or not. And, and Sussman's lawyers argued correctly that the only successful uh 1001 prosecutions in these types of cases were, were cases where somebody made a false tip to the FBI. And that just isn't what happened in this case at all. No, not at all. Uh, but the judge here now is coming back with a, a denial to the motion, which we said would probably happen, uh, even though, I mean, it was a great argument. And, I, you know, there is no material lie here. Um, and and so the judge gives good reasons. He he points out that the crux of the battle lines that have been drawn here <laughs> is that Durham actual can, phrase <laughs> yeah is that Durham contends that Sussman's statement meaningfully influenced the conduct of the FBI's investigation once it was underway, and that wasn't really addressed, was it, by the Sussman attorneys? It, it it wasn't okay. So Sussman's objection is that the statement lacks a sufficient nexus to the initiation of the investigation. Durham uh, doesn't really contest that at all. But but what, uh, and again, this was, I think, not particularly well spelled out in the DOJ's initial filing, but it's the kind of thing that a, a judge will tease together. And, and it was one of the reasons that, you know, you and I had said, I think prevailing on a motion to dismiss here is probably unlikely, right? Like there's a pretty heavy burden against making a dispositive motion saying as a legal matter here, this is insufficient as a matter of law, right? So that objection did not address the argument that it it could have influenced the investigation after it was underway. And let me give you kind of an, an example of, of that. And that is um, if you have a particular piece of information from the outset you can then ask follow-up questions, right? You can say, hey, had I known you were coming in representing the Hillary Clinton campaign, I would have also asked about X, Y, and Z. And and that's where I think this, this judge is really grappling with the question of, are you completely legally precluded from advancing this theory at all? Right. And and the feeling I get from from this judge's order is like, your case sucks, Durham. But oh, yeah. <laughs> it's got to go to trial. Because the judge says, quote, so while Sussman is correct <laughs> that certain statements might be so peripheral or unimportant to a relevant agency decision or function to be immaterial, while he's correct, it's <laughs> probably immaterial under Section 1001 as a matter of law, the court is unable to make that determination as to this alleged statement before hearing the government's evidence. Any such decision must therefore wait until trial. And cor correct me if I'm wrong, Andrew, but to me, this just sounds like the judge is saying, Sussman's going to win here, but that's for a jury to decide, really, not me. Uh, that's the whole point of this, you know, 
exercise. Yeah, of us having the whole jury thing. Yeah, I I, I think that's the right read. I, I, I do want to say, you know, again, that there are potential argument. Like, I, I could envision a case that departs from the kind of very narrow uh, false tip kind of cases uh, that, um, you know, would would lead you that 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 Sussman's lawyers have pointed out uh, are the entirety of the case law here. Right. And and I, I could imagine an honest DOJ prosecutor coming back and saying, right, I get it. These are the kind of cases that are on record, but that's not what the statute says. Right. 18 U.S.C. 1001 is broader than that. Mm-hmm. And. We have the right to argue that there is material misrepresentation at the outset that precluded us from going down certain lines of analysis that we would have gone down but for your client's failure to do so. Now, establishing the A, the evidence that was omitted, uh, because because again, you know, Sussman's uh, filings are just jam packed with evidence in the public record that everybody here, especially Jim Baker, knew exactly, you know, who represented who uh, as of as of 2016. But but, you know, again, I did. I knew. <laughs> yeah. 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 Every <laughs> listener to Mueller, she wrote, <laughs> knew this as of 2016. So, yeah, exactly right. Um, you would have to establish not only that that there was material concealment, you know, a concealment of a material fact, uh, but that the the practice inevitably, right, or uh, it would have had a, a very, very strong probability of leading the government to do a thing that it didn't do, right? Like, that's... Mm-hmm. That's the nexus that they're looking for, and it hasn't been articulated. And and I read this as the judge basically saying, "Yeah, you know what? Like, I I, I am not going to say uh, that the entirety of the process hasn't been harmed as a matter of law without allowing the government to put on its case." And I, I get that. That's what we predict. Yeah, yeah. And, and speaking of the government putting on its case in an <laughs> unrelated set of back and forth filings between Sussman and uh, Durham. Uh, Durham filed something called a motion in limine with rules 404B and sort of (laughs) some stuff that I I understand the concepts here. I'm not quite familiar with what 404B is or what in limine is. So why don't you tell us what a motion in limine is? Because it seems like what Sussman is trying to do here, or excuse me, what Durham is trying to do here is introduce a bunch of evidence into the you know into the court into trial that uh, he wants to use to prove his case that you know that this lie was material but a lot of it has nothing to do with it <laughs> um and so <laughs> we've got this motion in limine and then we've got a response to that motion so what is a motion in limine and and why did Durham wait over a year uh, to file like, oh, here's some evidence I've had for a year that I want to introduce today. What, what's yeah, going on? Yeah, two great questions. L- let's unpack that. As you get up to trial, both sides will file, uh, and this is true particularly in civil cases. It's also true in criminal cases like this. Uh, they will file motions in limine, or if you're an opening arguments listener, motions in lemonade. But um, the, the, the point is uh, to 
address as a legal issue disputes the parties have flagged about the quality of certain evidence that has been adduced throughout the discovery process, right? So let me give you a classic example of where you file a motion in limine, and that is the other side has an expert witness, right? And you go back and forth over that expert witness's qualifications, Right. Oh, you know, if you're going to voir dire this. Uh, <laughs> yeah, exactly. Like a little, little, little voir dire there. Right. We <laughs> can use my cousin Vinny here as yes. an example. Yeah, it, yeah, we absolutely can. Right. And so sometimes that plays out in front of the jury because you want it to play out in front of the jury. Uh, but sometimes, you know, going into trial, hey, this is probably going to be a close case. Right. Um, this is, uh, you know, we understand, for example, that like, uh, we're calling an expert in a particular field that is, you know, nascent, right. That, you know, that, that, that there's not a lot of precedent, or we understand that our expert, uh, for, you know, statistical analysis has a degree in, you know, something other than statistics. Right. So it, in other words, it's I'm an out of work hairdresser. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> uh, but uh, right. Perfect. I, again, my cousin Vinny, perfect examples of this. Right. And so you would tee up a motion in limine uh, to say, hey, I want to exclude Miss Vito as an expert witness. Right. She lacks the relevant credentials uh, in order to uh, opine uh, with respect to auto parts. Right. And. Because you know that's going to be something that, 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 that is not going to be resolved by, you know, two lines back and forth in court because it's a close case. You tee it up as a motion beforehand, and that way you can set forth all of the legal authorities that you intend to rely on that says, no, look, like it's perfectly fine to call somebody who has become an expert in auto repair uh, despite being an out-of-work hairdresser. But in the Durham filing, it doesn't seem like he's trying to challenge a witness. Uh, it seems like he's trying to introduce evidence that d he didn't introduce before. Is that something else that can be done in, in Lemonade? <laughs> so, so it can. So, so the, the, that background is to know that both sides have filed motions in Lemonade seeking to admit certain pieces of evidence, to exclude other pieces of evidence, right? This is the battle lines being drawn, right? Okay, so what, it's not just uh, witnesses, it's also evidence. Right, and so in particular, right, notes, you know, emails, documents, you could, think about how all of these could become close cases, right? Like every email you've ever written is technically hearsay. That's one of the things that like, I, I get that you get that <laughs> because you've been immersed in my world for uh, for a very long time. Uh, but when I try and explain that to clients that, you know, it sort of blows their mind. They're like, no, I, I, I said it. And it's like, right, right. But this is the document that's extrinsic evidence of a thing that you said at a previous point in time. Right. So usually those come in under a variety of hearsay exceptions. Right. Like you have your work emails that always go out while well, those are uh, regularly transacted business records. That becomes a, an exception to the hearsay rule. Mm -hmm. But if you have this like one kind of oddball email sitting out there in the middle of nowhere, it might be a tougher case. Right. Mm -hmm. So all of that is going is going back and forth. And then the government here, the, 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 the Durham and his line prosecutors um, have done a thing that I have never ever, ever, <laughs> ever, ever seen before. And that is 
also requested additional discovery, right? Right before trial related to grand jury subpoenas that were issued to Perkins Coie pursuant to obtaining the indictment against Sussman. And this is just, uh, you know, crazy pants bonkers. Yeah. And, and uh, apparently untimely. <laughs> um, <laughs> so, uh, you know, as, as we're talking, Dur- Durham filed these 404B notices and a motion to exclude certain evidence. And Sussman's lawyers filing in response explains it all. Right. Mm-hmm. So we could go over the in limine thing, but the, it's everything is addressed in the response to the motion. Uh, and so Durham submitted a list of other acts quote unquote, as evidence, including the gathering of data by tech executive one, Rodney Joffe, the accuracy of the data, questioning the accuracy of it, and a bunch of other bullshit that has absolutely nothing to do (laughs) with the 1001 charge. And Sussman's lawyers are asking the judge to exclude it all because they're asking to uh, squash the lemonade, if you will. (laughs) That is exactly right. And and this is where this, this intersects with, you had asked about uh, what is uh, Rule 404? That That is um, a reference to Rule 404B of the Federal Rules of Evidence, which concerns what kind of character evidence is and is not admissible at trial, right? So uh, Sussman's lawyers say the special counsel has charged a single count of 18 U.S.C. <laughs> Section 1001A2. I like how they keep pointing that out. Like, okay, all of this paper for one single count of 1001, 18 U.S. Code 1001. No, no, that is right. Because the the other thing that they have done a really good job, uh, Sussman's lawyers have done a really good job of, is that in every single filing, they will put a footnote or sometimes uh, in the opposition to, to the motion to compel discovery, Uh, This is several paragraphs in the body of the text uh, listing the Fox News and OAN and just, you know, mass publicity that every time Durham files something, uh, there is this chatter in the right wingosphere about like, oh, see, we introduced all, you know, we we broke through and showed you the secret stuff that Hillary Clinton. Right. And, And so they have kept this judge focused in a way that that I think is really effective and really productive on exposing this as the entirety of this prosecution is designed to generate right-wing headlines. So, <laughs> yeah. So so there's that. Uh the <laughs> that that I think is the reason why they continually have to say, "Remember, we're here for a 1001 charge, right? This is the kind of thing that, you know, you get uh, you, you plea out and get 6 months of probation." But in any event, right? 1001, uh, whether Mr. Sussman was acting on behalf of any client when conveying information to then FBI general counsel James Baker during a September 19th, 2016 meeting. And yet the special counsel now seeks to introduce several categories of what we call other acts evidence pursuant to rule 404B that have nothing whatsoever to do with that charged false statement. And in some instances, nothing whatsoever to do with Sussman himself. <laughs> right. And the, and and the filing goes on to say the special counsel seeks to introduce evidence of purportedly objectionable data gathering and overstated analysis of the data, even though Mr. Sussman has no involvement in or awareness of either. <laughs> he seeks to introduce other purported false statements, even though none were made. 
and they're not being charged here. And he seeks to introduce evidence of obstruction of justice based on a purported violation of Perkins Coie policy, even though there was no such violation, a fact that the special counsel would have learned had he even bothered to obtain <laughs> and read the policy in the first place. So, <laughs> so, so basically what the lawyer's saying here, right? Correct me if I'm wrong. Durham is saying obstruction of justice because uh, Perkins Coie <laughs> has a policy that doesn't exist about erasing text messages that has nothing to do with the 1001 charge anyway. And there's no such policy, which would have been found out if Durham had taken two seconds to look up Perkins Coie, Perkins Coie's policy. Yeah. And, and, and why don't I break down a little bit about what Rule 404 is, okay? Mm. Um, so Rule 404 sets out certain prohibitions, right? 404A says evidence of a person's character or a character trait is not admissible to prove that on that particular occasion the person acted in accordance with that character or trait. So you can think of this as the carjacker willy rule, right? Like, objection, and then the judge says, I'm going to allow it. it. It characterizes the defendant as a carjacker, right? Like, you you cannot put somebody on the stand and say, hey, uh, I want to introduce a bunch of evidence that shows that this person has a propensity for lying, and therefore I want the jury to say, oh, so he probably lied in this case too, right? And there's a very, very good reason for that, and that is because the inference that people draw tends to greatly outweigh the strength of the evidence, right? Like, mm. if I show that somebody, it, 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 just think about this in the abstract, um, if somebody has... Uh, been convicted of breaking and entering uh, and robbing a 7-Eleven on three prior occasions. And then I tell you, they have just been arrested for breaking and entering and robbing a 7-Eleven, right? That, the average person is like, well, obviously they did that one too, right? Yeah. And, and, and no, no, that isn't obvious. I just made this up, right? Mm -hmm. Like, in other words, we would instantly be able to convict any previously convicted criminal of the same crime just by arresting them, right? So you have a that's why the Sussman attorney says this to avoid creating a series of prejudicial and inflammatory sideshows. Yeah, yeah, that's okay. exactly right. <laughs> so, so you might be saying, okay, well, well, when can you use character evidence? And you could use it. There, there are a whole bunch of. Uh, specific exceptions that lawyers have to memorize when studying for the bar. But the but the real answer here is in the B section, 404B, uh, which says that that uh, character evidence, uh, again, general rule, evidence of any other crime, wrong or act is not admissible to prove a person's character to show that they were acting in accordance with that character. Right. You can't say want to characterize them as a carjacker, as a thief, as a liar, whatever. But this evidence may be admissible for another purpose, such as proving motive, opportunity, intent, preparation, plan, knowledge, identity, absence of mistake, or lack of accident. Right? Okay, so so the fact that Durham wants to introduce evidence that, well, he purports that the data was gathered uh, erroneously or analyzed erroneously goes toward the intent of Sussman bringing a bunch of bullshit to the FBI, even that, though that, that has nothing to do with the lie, quote unquote. 
That that's right. So th- let's think about how this might play out uh, involving you know, another litigant in a different form, right? Suppose we have to show uh, that uh, Donald Trump willfully introduced false figures in in an election case, right? Um, Now, what we could not do is introduce evidence that throughout his entire life, Donald Trump has never told the fucking truth once, right? That, That would be highly probative, but also, let's face it, highly prejudicial. But when Donald Trump says, I don't know. I couldn't have done any of that because I don't know what any of these laws mean. If you wanted to then show that Donald Trump personally signed off on 61 separate election related lawsuits, right? You you would then be able to say, look, like he's claiming he doesn't know what any of these mean. But here are 15 lawsuits in which his lawyers have signed their names to allegations involving this exact same criminal statute, right? So it's really pretextual to think that Donald Trump has no idea what the hell we're talking about, right? Like he knows exactly what we're talking about because he's been involved in these kinds of cases before. And there you're not using his prior involvement to show propensity to commit the same bad act. You're using it to demonstrate prior knowledge or Mm. a motive or otherwise, uh, you know, rebut any attempt to say, oh, I don't I don't I don't know what any of this is. Now, I can imagine you're thinking, well, it doesn't seem to matter what the reason is for introducing a piece of evidence. Once the jury hears it, <laughs> they're they're going to run with it. Right. And the answer to that is yes. Right. <laughs> That's why these motions in limine are so very important. Right. Mm. You you want to try and get the piece of evidence in that is going to cause the jury to really think long and hard about it. And you're looking to do an end run around all the reasons why you shouldn't be allowed to get that piece of evidence. in. Okay. And so that's why Sussman's attorneys say the special counsel Durham should be forced to keep the focus where it belongs on this single false statement that has been allegedly charged. Yep. And Sussman's lawyers go on to say Durham's shit is wildly untimely (laughs) as well. So it's not just like, Hey, this doesn't have anything to do with him. You can't say that because Joffe uh, collected bad data knowingly that somehow that's on Sussman. Um, but they go on to say you, you're late AF with this. <laughs> the special counsel was required, quote, to provide notice of any Rule 404B evidence he seeks to introduce by March 18th, which he did. But in that filing, Durham failed to say why the evidence was admissible. He didn't file that shit until five days after the deadline, and that late filing included two new bits of evidence, and special counsel didn't give any reason for violating the court's order like that. Sorry, sir, we're late with this additional shit we want to introduce. Um, So that's all part of this, too. It's not just an argument about relevance. It's it's an argument about he's late. He, He filed it late. Yeah. And and again, the best legal arguments when when you are attempting to enforce uh, a particular technical deadlines, right? What what you might call, you know, a technicality, although, you know, again, in our legal system, that usually comes up in the category of getting off on a technicality rather than being able to prosecute someone on a technicality. But but um, but when you are applying those kinds of procedural rules, it's a good idea to have them backstopped with arguments that also engage on the substance of it, right? Because 
judges are are very receptive to. Yeah, yeah, I know we're technically late, but um, this is really, really important for the jury to know. Right Mm -hmm. here, (laughs) in addition to the arguments that we just went through regarding the unfairly prejudicial nature of the character evidence, um, it's actually even worse than you put it in terms of how bad the technical violations are. Right. So, yeah, yes, uh, the opening salvo is by any measure, the special counsel's motion is wildly untimely. And, and I will tell you, as as somebody who was, you know, sometimes inflammatory in, in pleadings before the court, um, you do that with purpose, right? You want to say, hey, look, this is not this had to be filed on Thursday and they filed it the next Tuesday and they're going to come back and go Did three days really prejudice you all the this is. Okay, number one, uh, that it is untimely by 11 months, right, Uh, that uh, that that they knew that that these particular set of documents and, 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 and let's be clear, the set of documents is basically the underlying fusion GPS research, right? Including the steel dossier uh, that was prepared uh, by fusion GPS for Perkins Coie in connection with the 2016 Hillary Clinton campaign. And if you're thinking, what the hell could that possibly have to do with the indictment of Michael Sussman? Congratulations. You get it. Right. So, (laughs) so number one, right. uh, Perkins Coie refused to turn that over to the grand jury almost a year ago. Right. So you've had notice for 11 plus months that uh, that you were not getting those documents. (laughs) Number two, the the fact that it was presented to the grand jury means that your motion is not just untimely. It's in the wrong forum. It should have been presented to the chief judge of the district court during the grand jury investigation. Before yeah, the indictment there'd be an out. indictment for this. Yeah. If, if, from the grand jury. If it was, hmm. Yeah. Third, another procedural violation, which is it is against the law to use. And we saw this in connection with the Mueller investigation to use a grand jury to obtain documents for purposes of their admissibility at trial substantively against that defendant, right? Like the the point of a grand, and, and this one, if, if I need to kind of explain that out a little bit, the, the purpose of a grand jury is to return an indictment against a criminal defendant, right? Is to say, uh, we think that there is, probable cause to indict, uh, you know, former president one now identified as Donald Trump for this particular crime based on the evidence that we've seen. And because it's preliminary, grand juries get to hear all kinds of evidence that is not admissible at trial. Right. They, they get to hear hearsay. They get to read hearsay. They get to look at, uh, you know, I- illegally obtained confessions, illegally seized evidence, right? Like you can look at all of that stuff as a grand jury uh, because the grand jury does not deprive you of your liberty inherently, right? Like the grand jury says, okay, there's enough there. Um, maybe some of this doesn't make it to trial. Maybe none of it makes it to trial, but there's enough there for us to think uh, that moving in that direction is um, is is appropriate, right? Now, is, is, is it against the law because of grand jury secrecy? Um, so, because I mean, of, it makes I, sense to me that you can't use a grand jury to get documents that you aren't u- intending on using to get an indictment, just to use at trial. 
um, that seems to be using the grand jury for the for the wrong reasons. Um, but also, it seems to be like if you can look at all this stuff at a, in, in in a grand jury hearing, that that's sort of falls under that umbrella of of, of grand jury secrecy and and can't be otherwise used for any other purpose besides indicting someone. Yeah, I I I think that's I think that overlaps, right? I, okay. I think I it, it, no, I it's it's good for you to to uh, to to point out that there is that additional component, right? Because one of the reasons why grand jury testimony is secret is because it's inherently less reliable than the kind of testimony that that's introduced at trial, right? And possibly and less... excruciatingly prejudicial. Yeah, I'd, absolutely. And so the the rules are very, very clear that you use the grand jury process because they have access to information that no way, no how would get anywhere close to a trial. You use that to obtain information related to the indictment, not in order to, to somehow improperly uh, get at something that you want to introduce at trial. Um, and here, <laughs> um, pretty persuasively, uh, uh, Sussman's lawyers argue, um, the, the DOJ basically told us <laughs> that they issued some of these subpoenas uh, in order to uh, get at, uh, argue, uh, in order to get at documents from, uh, fusion gps uh that that they would then use at trial um that's a that's a real clear no-no right so yeah that, that, and and fusion gps has something to say about it <laughs> <laughs> because this morning while you and i were texting back and forth what are we talking about do you want to do sussman i'll do sussman you do this blah 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 all of a sudden 10 minutes before talk about 11th hour um 10 minutes before recording time <laughs> Fusion GPS files literally at eleven o'clock. <laughs> files non-party Fusion GPS's opposition to Durham's motion to compel the production of purported privileged communications for in-camera inspection by the court, and this is a chef's kiss of emotion. Because <laughs> uh, I, you know, I've between you and I, the shows that we do, the shows that you do, the shows that I do, I've read a lot of filings, right? And some of them are just idiotic and and some of them are so well put together and i would i wouldn't expect anything less from fusion gps by the way um but you know they come in and say uh, hey uh the court should dismiss the motion as procedurally improper for first of all for the reasons set forth in the defendant's opposition right and which the, i just went over yeah. Well, yeah because it's late and irrelevant <laughs> yeah uh, second of all uh, or the court should also dismiss the government's 11th hour attempt to pierce the privilege of non-parties over documents that the government has not even attempted to show are relevant to the indictment. Okay. And finally, they should deny the motion for in-camera inspection of the documents because it it is evident based on the facts and the privilege log that the documents have properly been withheld on the grounds of privilege and attorney work product. So there is an insufficient showing to justify the use of judicial resources to review the individual documents. You can't have them, bro. You can't fucking have them. We already went through this a year ago and it's been sort of determined already that this is, these are subject in our log to attorney client privilege and work product. And so that's why fusion filed this really beautiful 33 page, uh, non-party motion to, to, uh, to stop 
Durham from compelling this evidence. Yeah, uh, their their lawyers here are Levy Firestone Muse, um, n- not a firm with which I am directly familiar, but this is um, an excellent brief, and it and it and one of the things that it does really really well is storytelling where it may not be intuitively obvious even to other lawyers why the privilege attaches to the work that that fusion gps did right opposition opposition research on the trump campaign uh in the summer of 2016 and you know i can imagine a lot of our listeners are like well wait a minute that that doesn't sound like uh legal you know that doesn't sound like attorney client privilege or let's make this argument even stronger um flip it around and if donald trump were attempting to obscure oppo research from the one six committee which he 100 percent is uh, we would be saying, no, wait a minute. That's not, you know, like that's the evidence of the criming. We want that in. Right. And, and well, yeah, but if you're oppo researching uh, in Russia, uh, uh, leave, leave aside, obviously material differences <laughs> on the content. I got right? you. I got you. But, I got you. But, but there's, there's a really strong argument here uh, that, that this brief ex- lays out in an exceptionally good way. And that is, Hey, we were retained by Mark Elias, who was then a partner at Perkins Coie and has since been uh, maybe the biggest uh, uh, lawyer thorn in the side to the Trump administration uh, in terms of his involvement with election litigation and kicking the crap out of Sidney Powell wherever uh, and whenever she she shows up. Um, OK, we were engaged for this purpose. Uh, and then it's uh, by Perkins Coie, right? Elias was a partner at Perkins Coie. So we're engaged by the firm. Uh, to to do oppo research and at the time it was made clear to us and i believe i believe the phrase used in the uh in the fusion gps motion in the fusion gps uh opposition is uh, famously litigious <laughs> uh which is which is true right which is to say hey look um elias had a uh, mark elias had a subjectively and objectively reasonable concern about Mr. Trump's litigiousness, given his numerous threats of and actual litigation against his critics. Indeed, that concern was prescient, with Mr. Trump having recently launched litigation seeking tens of millions of dollars against every interested party here, (laughs) including Fusion. (laughs) That sort of puts it in the category of preparing for litigation, which puts it under work product privilege, right? That's exactly right. It is attorney (laughs) work product if you prepare something thinking that you're about to be sued. And why would you be sued? Because Donald Trump sues people all the fucking time. And so absolutely, if you're if you're going to say uh, uh, as a candidate, uh, you know, we think Donald Trump is the Russian stooge candidate. Right. Uh, which, you know, by the way, Hillary Clinton uh, did say that about Tulsi Gabbard uh, did not quite say that about uh, about Donald Trump in 2016, uh, but certainly, you know, implied uh, correctly uh, that the candidate was soft on Russia. Putin's puppet. Yeah. uh, uh, yeah. You no puppet. You're the puppet. You puppet. (laughs) Puppet. Right. Right. (laughs) It. it, In order to say that. Right. And not get sued even against a public figure for defamation under the New York Times v. Sullivan standard. You have to show that that was not made with actual malice. Right. Mm -hmm. You have to you have to be prepared to show uh, that you have good evidence for the claims that you're making. 
And you so, need to hire somebody to get you that evidence. And therefore, evidence. it makes it work product privilege because you're preparing for being to be for being sued. Exactly right. Mm-hmm. And good argument. Re, and, and again, validating what was said uh, in the Perkins Coie brief. Right. Th- this is something of which s- John Durham has been on notice uh, for about a year now. Right. That that. Uh, Fusion GPS has consistently taken the position uh, that its work product is attorney work product. And if you disagreed with that, you you had lots of opportunities to litigate that question. You had 11 months of opportunities to litigate that question and you didn't. And and the the extra special chef's kiss of of genius here is um, maybe... Your investigation would have gone differently had you tracked that down at the, you know, had you litigated it at the time, uh, which, you know, exactly mirrors the claim uh, that uh, that that Durham has made with respect to why this case should go to trial at all. Right. Like, well, we would have conducted the the uh, the investigation differently had you known. Well, you know, you would have conducted the prosecution of Sussman differently uh, had you litigated this question. Right. Fusion GPS stuff in or out prior to the indictment, right? Yeah, and, and the so, way you would have done it differently is by realizing none of this shit is illegal, and you wouldn't yeah. have brought any charges. That's no, that that's exactly right. So, so look, you, you put all of that together, right? And um, and 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 you have, and we talked about this. This is a a bit of a spoiler sneak preview for the next segment. We talked about this in connection with the John Eastman case. And one of the things that I said to you uh, that turned out to be correct is that there are very few instances in which you can persuade a court. Nah, don't even you shouldn't even look at these documents. You shouldn't conduct an in-camera review to see if they're privileged or not. That is precisely the argument that Sussman, Perkins Coie and Fusion GPS are all making right now, which is. Your Honor, don't slow this down. Do not order an in-camera production of the documents. Do not sit there and look and review, because even though we're confident we're going to win, that that the very act of looking at that is going to be prejudicial to us in two different ways, right? First, it's going to be prejudicial in terms of time, right? Like we're scheduled to go to trial here. We got, you know, we got work to do. And now, you're you know, you're going to derail us with uh, something that is, you know, tangential to uh, at best, right? <laughs> this is, you know, virtually all of that work was done. Well, I, I don't want to say virtually all of that work was done after Sussman's conversation. Um, none of that work relates to Sussman's conversation with Jim Baker in any way, right? Um, but, but, but more importantly, had Sussman's lawyers known that that argument was going to be made in court, they would have prepared their defense differently, right? Mm-hmm. Not not because it changes the underlying offense, but it changes the presentation to the jury. And this is sure. something a judge is going to find incredibly pers- Of course it does. We cannot have on the eve of trial uh, a, a mini hearing and evaluation of an entirely different theory of the case uh, that is going to require your client to 
you know, present a very different slate of witnesses, right? Like, because if all the fusion GPS stuff comes in, uh, again, none of it has anything to do with whether Sussman violated 18 USC 1001, but you're going to have to get, you're going to have to rebut the inferences that they're going to draw in front of the jury. And you're going to have to to take your case differently. Yeah. Yeah, and then and then the whole right wing, you know, howler monkeys would be all, "Ooh, the judge wants to take a look at what's going on here." You know, that's gonna again further prejudice the case. It's a sideshow, quote unquote, and it looks like the expedited uh, desires here are going to be fulfilled because there's a minute order now entered by Judge Cooper. Correct? Yep. Uh, so as you are listening to this episode, April twentieth at ten a.m. Uh, the nice. judge is, is going to hear expedited <laughs> is going to hear expedited argument uh, on the uh, on Sussman's motion in limine to preclude that evidence uh, and uh, to exclude uh, certain proposed expert witness testimony. And um, uh, so all of this is is going to move quickly, will be in the news as you are listening to this episode. And uh, now you can kind of decode uh, what those uh, what those rulings mean and, and how to understand them. Awesome. All right. We are going to be right back to talk about Mr. Eastman, but we need to take a <laughs> quick break. So everybody stick around. Stay with us. Hi there. Diana Erickson here, host of the podcast One Sweet Dream, which is a podcast that shines new light on the Beatles illuminating their story in ways not seen before. This podcast does deep storytelling to get to radical new ideas and insights that transform our understanding of their story. We've always known the Beatles story was exciting and epic, but there is an even bigger, better, sexier, and more beautiful story that's been hiding in plain sight. And that's what I want to share with you. Historians say that it takes about 50 years to tell the story of an event properly. And so here we are, a little over 50 years later, and have I got a great story to tell. So I hope you'll join us at Once We Dream Podcast, where we explore the dream that was and is the Beatles. Episodes will be released every Tuesday and Friday, so please subscribe to Once We Dream wherever you listen to podcasts. All right, welcome back. We have... New stuff from the John Eastman files, which sounds like a terrible 1970s cop show. <laughs> the president's lawyer, although you know we still haven't seen a signed engagement letter. Nope. Uh, but the Judge Carter said, all right, you're his lawyer, has finally completed his review of the tens of thousands of pages of documents previously withheld. We previously focused on that privilege hearing, which was held on March 8th, and the 111 documents produced between January 4th and January 7th. And those documents... Uh, these the, the the rest, though, are the tens of thousands of responsive documents that were generated in the months before January 6th. Yep, that's right. So based on what those 111 documents said, right, or based on what we can infer, they said <laughs> from the judge's ruling on the crime fraud exception, we can expect that a significant amount of planning took place in December. And these documents may shed more light on exactly when Trump knew he lost the election and exactly how he and Eastman and others, and we know there are a ton of others who have been copied on these docs, crafted the plan to steal the election anyway. This, of course, is the key piece of information you need to convince a prosecutor that they would be able to convict Donald Trump of obstructing an official proceeding. 
Now, I want to ask you a quick question here, Andrew, because mm, sure. we know that in the 111 emails from January 4th to January 7th, the judge declared that Eastman was, in fact, Trump's attorney. Even though they don't have a signed engagement letter, it's pretty obvs, right, that he was representing Trump. But I, if you're looking at the three months prior, isn't the court going to now have to establish when exactly Eastman became Trump's attorney? That's my big question here. Because at first I was like, well, these are going to have to go through crime fraud exception and work product doctrine. But somebody brought up to me, a listener said, yeah, but hey, it might also not fall under the fact that he wasn't his attorney because, you know, even though it was clear he was from January 4th to January 7th, I'm not so sure about those three months leading up. What would what, what would be your answer to that particular it, inquiry? It that is that is exactly right. Uh, good e eagle eyes by by our listener there. Um, all of the substantive determinations uh, made at that March eighth hearing can only can none of them can help Donald Trump and John Eastman. All of them can hurt. Right. So in other words, the determination that. As of January 3rd, John Eastman was acting as the president's lawyer, does not bar this court from saying, yeah, but in December he was not. The determination that there was no waiver, and I have to tell you, I have thought long and hard about whether we need to, to file uh, another amicus brief in this case and point out that uh, the March 28th ruling on waiver did not address the issue of John Eastman going on Lawrence Lessig's podcast uh, and saying, hey, man, you know, I'm here. I talked to my I talked to the boss and he said it's totally cool to talk about this stuff um, that that's not anywhere in the court's analysis. Um, but but again, leave that issue aside. Uh, the fact that there was no explicit waiver in connection with the memoranda that were circulated January 3rd, 4th, 5th, 6th. Does not preclude the court from finding a waiver with respect to some of the earlier planning documents, right? Like all of those issues can uh, and and may, you know, of necessity uh, be relitigated in taking a look at, at this uh, now complete, you know, tranche of documents. Even the Chapman University argument, the fact that it's a third party, because that seemed to be sort of ixnayed. <sighs> For and I, I assume that would apply to all of the emails and not just a certain date range. It, it uh, so uh, once again, you've you've kind of cut to the one I deliberately omitted uh, on that basis. You could re-raise the Chapman question if, in doing so, you were able to say, "Oh yeah, now like the characterization of." representation of cause versus candidate we we understand that your honor uh rejected that argument on uh, march 8th but you know this we now see a level of partisan political planning that goes far beyond what the university has ever allowed right i got so, it or we've got the other the dean from 2001 who can come in and testify now. And we've got new evidence. We've got new stuff. We've got some new stuff to offer you that you hadn't had the ability to consider on March 8th. I, I, so yes, I will say this. I continue to think that will be the weakest argument. Um, it, it remains an argument that the one six committee, we'll talk about this as we look through some of the recent filings has preserved for appeal, right? In, in all of their filings, uh, they note we reserve the right to argue that none of these are privileged because 
uh, all of them were, you know, produced uh, under the auspices of a third party where you had no reasonable expectation of privacy. Okay. So, all right. it, it, so it let, could, but it's weaker. Yeah. Yeah, it, yeah, I thought so, too. I, I thought it was a strong argument to begin with. But when I read what the judge had to say about it, I was like, oh, all right. OK, that makes sense. Um, now, with regards to these other 27,000 pages, um, we reported and, and everyone knows, listeners know, Eastman produced the documents very slowly and even went to the court to reduce the burden of production. He didn't want to do 1500 a day. He wanted to do 750 and the court said, OK, a thousand. Um, and cool. then he, he turned around and used that time to go barnstorming around the country, fundraising and grifting from his client's idiot base. And in fact, he went to Wisconsin and spent three hours to try to get them to again submit a false slate of electors and decertify <laughs> the, the electors in that state. But apparently he also reviewed a handful of documents per day during those trips because the production is finished. And so now we can talk about uh, this production, because I I believe I asked you on, on Twitter, I was like, all right, we got 27,000 emails. It looks like this is going to have to go through another in-camera review. How do you do that in a timely fashion? Yeah. And I, I want to get there. I want to unpack everything. Um, let me bracket by saying every single day Eastman has, as per the court's order, submitted supplemental privilege logs, right? So that is going back line by line. We've talked about it. This is an Excel spreadsheet. It lists document by document every single one that you withhold as privileged. And that's the, the number... one that sucked so bad that yeah. that was one of the arguments that they had to have an in-camera review because he sucked at making privilege logs. Exactly right. Those updated privilege logs are sealed. <laughs> so we can't, I can't read them. You can't read them. We can't get them. Every day, the 1-6 committee has done two things. They have filed objections to the privilege log that are sealed that you know that refer to and contain the information that is designated as as privileged and uh, that is designated as confidential and therefore non-public uh, but also filed a notice of objection that does not refer to the privilege logs in any specified way and so those notices are unsealed right and when i say every day i mean the the last 130 docket entries, right? We went from 195 to like 320, right? Are all basically either logs or notices of objection. So the logs we can't see, but we can see the one six objection, but they keep it vague. That's exactly right. And so each one has basically the same five boilerplate paragraphs. The first one is we're filing this. This is our response by order of the court. Second paragraph says we're filing under seal our specific objections to the particular documents and the reasons therefore get to that in a second. Number three says we've reserved our argument that none of these documents are privileged. That's because of both the and it doesn't specify either of these. Right. So it leaves them free to argue the Chapman University stuff, the no attorney client relationship stuff. It just says we don't think that any of these documents are privileged. Right, All the, the stuff, stuff they, they yeah, the stuff they lost. Got it. Yep, okay. Yep. We are also noting in our file under seal that these privilege logs remain inadequate. You still <laughs> suck at this, John Eastman, and we can't fully assess our, our claims of privilege because you're not giving us enough information, right? And then the fifth paragraph, you know, goes on from that to say the revised privilege logs do not fully resolve the deficiencies the court has ordered you to fix. So even after the court said, you got to fix your stupid logs, they still didn't. And the January 6th committee is like, you're still being vague and stupid. 
and we can't assess these. And they've been doing that on a rolling basis, you're saying. It didn't just all come at once. So they've, the court's been getting these um, and per- perhaps has maybe been able to review them. But it sounds like the same arguments were raised before the March 8th hearing, which makes it feel like the e- that Eastman uh, just didn't learn anything from his <laughs> last devastating loss. Yeah, that 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 is right. And 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 it is certainly not indicative of a witness that is cooperating with either the one six committee or the DOJ as part of some kind of agreement. Some people have have speculated that, right, that like uh, the DOJ, after hearing a judge say, uh, we think it is more likely than not that you've committed crimes. Right. One of the things that could have happened um, that would uh, not be a, a, a leak from uh the the doj can i guess yo go go right ahead can i guess what what is it called an order 2703 where they can go in and get uh compel evidence from a third party like a chapman university without notifying the target that they're doing it Uh, that is even more subtle and sophisticated than i was thinking so 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 yes uh that that remains a tool the doj has in its toolbox At, at a higher level of resolution um, you have approaching someone, this is typical uh, practice, it, you, they could have approached Eastman and said, you are now officially a target of X investigation. Would you like to cooperate and work with us uh, or would you like to be indicted? Right. And so uh, certainly I think there was reason for maybe some optimist prime. Right. It, dating back to the court's March 28th order. Right. Uh, because at that time, um, we saw the parties prepared a joint status report and the joint status report was like, yep, it's all good. Everybody's everybody's doing what they're supposed to be doing. Um, and so, you know, there was some speculation. Maybe Eastman is cooperating with the one six committee. Uh, I, I think or with the DOJ, is, you mean? Yeah. Or or either. Yeah, that that's right. Um, uh, and and now I think. There's very right. We had he declined to appeal. Right. Um, So you sort of put all that together and you're like, hey, maybe Uh, I I think we have enough information now to know that 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 Eastman, you know, remains uh, recalcitrant. Yeah, I I, I think so, too. And and that's why I think if the DOJ were going to get any of his stuff, he'd be squawking about it. And he certainly wouldn't be in Wisconsin trying to overthrow (laughs) Biden electors and submit false states of uh, slates of electors again. I think that's right. Um, But. That's why I'm thinking perhaps the DOJ was was able to get these emails in a, in a way that that John Eastman wasn't uh, informed about. Yeah, very, very, very possible. I, I really I like that thought process. Um, it is w- with respect to the criminal investigation. Um, Chapman University has you know been telegraphing their willingness to their eagerness uh, to turn these docs over. So so yeah. yes. All right, so let's delve into the numbers of the privilege review that took mm-hmm. Eastman three weeks to complete. We started with about 100,000 pages to review with consent and agreement of the 1-6 committee. Over 10,000 documents, adding up to about 30,000 pages, were excluded from the production right off the bat because they were mass mailings, like sending around cases that are in the public domain with no further analysis. Um, we saw some of this in email chains referenced during the March 8th hearing, right? Yeah. And yeah. so that, that leaves just under 10,000 documents. Eastman produced nearly two-thirds of the documents. That's a total of 6,035 that run to about 25,000 pages, 25,319 to be exact. 
That means he's asserted attorney-client privilege over the remaining 3,907 documents that add up to 40,656 pages. Andrew, given that it took this judge 20 days to rule (laughs) on 100 documents, and that's why I asked you, can he, like, hire a staff to go through these? Uh, I mean, if you appoint a special master, it could be months, and the committee just doesn't have months here. That 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 is all true. It's a big number, but 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 it isn't in some ways. And uh, the judge has two clerks. I I I, I want to break it down and parse this a little bit because I I think we are not in. Okay, it's time to panic. You know, you've you got got by the uh, delay is always our friend crowd, right? Um, certainly, that is a part of this, right? Like that there is an effort to. Uh, delay and obfuscate and hope to run out the clock. But a couple different things to keep in mind. Number one, we can knock 650 documents, 3,000 pages right off the top, um, where that is where the 1-6 committee had no objection to the privilege, right? Um, other than the boilerplate stuff we've talked about that they've preserved. So mm, right. that gets us down to a total of 3,247 documents, 36,106 pages for the in-camera review. Yeah, and and if uh, a reasonable person can look at fifteen hundred pages a day, uh, y- and and can... <laughs> not have any other job, which I think this judge probably does, <laughs> you're looking at you know fifteen twenty days, uh, and that's just if that's all you do all day every day. So what what what's going to happen? Well, let let's that's what it takes when you are reading these documents, creating a privilege log and trying to exclude them when you when you are just evaluating the docs there there are a couple of things to keep in mind so first for our lawyers budding lawyers that listen thirty six thousand pages that's about 18 bankers boxes worth right so if you're thinking about cases where you say 18 i don't want to suggest 18 boxes is not a lot it's not a hundred roughly about (laughs) the number of boxes of classified information donald trump stole from the white house (laughs) <laughs> excellent we, we will continue to use trump-based num- num- numbering <laughs> systems uh how many scaramoochies will it take yeah, to go right. through the- <laughs> so uh, so here are a couple of things to keep in mind the first is any lawyer who's ever done document review will tell you that what takes the longest period of time are not the in and out calls right is this privileged or not but when you have to redact part of a document right because then you have to sit through and look and sort of carefully excise the stuff that's related to the deal aside from, you know, the stuff that is related to seeking legal advice. There's there's virtually none of that here. So uh, so you don't have redaction issues. Right. Um, also, many of these are going to be highly duplicative. Right. And and the best clue we have on that is thirty two hundred documents, thirty six thousand pages. Right. That means each document is about twelve pages long. And these are emails, right? So how do you get a 12-page email? Well, okay, I'm pretty wordy. (laughs) Uh, But by and large, like, you're going to get them in one of two ways. The first is, if you and I have a a 10-page email conversation where we go back and forth 30 times, right? I, I say, hey, Allison, and send the email. And then you write back, hey, what's up? And I write back, I'd like to do some light criming. And you write back, cool, uh, and even in particular. And I'm like, yeah, I'm thinking of stealing an election. You know, right? Like we do that 30 times. 
that's going to get that same document will be produced 30 different times in this in this production right Got because it. every time that email was sent that copy gets hits the filter and becomes a separate document right so that that's one and i guess the other one would be andrew if you have an exhibit like a let's say a handbook or a powerpoint for how to do insurrections <laughs> uh, and it's it's 10 pages long and you've sent it to a dozen people it'll show up multiple times I, I i get it but it still seems like a lot is there any way the judge can just cut through it and say hey i told you that planning for the insurrection was a crime and you kept excluding these on the grounds that they were planning for the insurrection and just hand them all over like how is there's got to be a way yeah he could and there are a couple of ways to do that right so first the judge could just blanket rule in a, a category of documents right um in an extreme sense, uh, the judge could impose sanctions for on Eastman for failing to comply with the court's order, right? Like if these are truly ridiculous, right? So let's give an example. Suppose a uh, the <laughs> that the the solitary document, right, document number five nine four four, that was ruled in on the basis of the crime fraud exception. Suppose that document is listed as attorney client privileged multiple times on these privilege logs from, you know, in previously. Well, that could upset the judge enough to say, okay, uh, that puts I'm all of your assertions in question. So yeah. I'm releasing it all. I've tried. Like we, I did my best with you. I came in, I gave you extra time. I told you what to do. You're doing this in bad faith. Um, and you know, I even let you have some spare time and you went yeah. out and crimed again. Right. Um, but, but, but at the end of the day, I, I think the court, is going to take assertions of attorney-client privilege very, very seriously. And, yeah. and and that's important because if there are any subsequent appeals, or or better yet, if you want to deter making appeals at all, which is what happened last time, right? Like the, 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 the ruling was so good and so bulletproof, we called it here, uh, that, that a few days later, Eastman was like, yeah, I'm, I'm going to spend money losing in, <laughs> at the Ninth Circuit. <laughs> Again. Yeah. yeah. So... Is is uh, is that why paragraph five says that Eastman has reviewed the documents, quote, in accord with his ethical obligations to maintain and violate the confidence and at every peril to himself to preserve the secrets of his client? Yeah. Yeah. And that's and that is quoting both from uh, California law and from the uh, model rules of, of professional ethics. Um, yeah. It, he's reminding the judge of that that says, look. You're going to look at this and you're going to think that like, you know, I was super hyper aggressive here, but I'm not being super hyper aggressive because I am an insurrectionist seeking to prevent this court and the public from knowing about crimes, but rather because I am maintaining inviolate the confidence that my client has placed in me, even at great peril to myself personally. Oh, yeah. oh get him a fainting couch. <laughs> yeah, exactly right. All right, uh, so it, it's, it seems like it's probably just going to come down to the fact that the court is going to have to go through these documents. Can can people help him? Does he have a staff? Can he's he... got he's got two clerks. Two mm -hmm. clerks could knock out eighteen boxes in a weekend. All right. So okay. I hope so. You know, let's let's uh, let's see what happens. Um, if you if you enlist a a magistrate, you can enlist a magistrate uh, and maybe bring in uh, another clerk. So that would give you three clerks and two judges kind of sitting around ordering some Chinese food and uh, going over some uh, some light treason from December. Yeah, here's another question. I'm, I'm assuming that the committee knows what's 
they don't know what's in these emails, but they know what's in the privilege log. Um, and so maybe they could like how they hyper-focused on January 4th through 7th. Maybe they could say, all right, all right, do these first and then, you know, or do the December 18th ones first. Cause we know about that fun, fun meeting. Do these first. We, these are the priority. Maybe one, six files, something like, uh, here's a priority list of what we want. The rest we'll get when we can. But I mean, honestly, I think that with given the emails that were handed over, already uh, and already subject to in-camera review the important ones from the fourth through the seventh might be all the committee really needs and everything else is just sort of icing on the cake um they're not going to go through in public hearings twenty-seven thousand pages of documents so uh maybe i don't know i don't know well, it'll be interesting to see what the ones i'm i'm assuming the one six committee will file something asking for something specific here uh, but who knows yeah let's uh very very quickly Lawyers, as as I've said previously, lawyers are good at looking at a privilege log and knowing where you're trying to bury the bodies. So they absolutely can uh, and likely will uh, give the court some guidance as to uh, which are the start here. Yeah, right. Start here. Take a look at this one. Do that. Right. We did that the last time. uh, You know, we had a motion to compel on on uh, documents. And there were like, you know, 50. <laughs> we're like, yeah. yeah, we want all 50, but we really, really want, you know, these three. So and there, that, and there are other standout dates. There's the December 8th yep. date. There's a December 14th date. There's the December 18th meeting. There's the December 19th tweet where you might say, give us the two days around these important dates. Because, you know, Eastman was communicating in prep for the, the 14th when they, you know, when they had to, the states had to finally certify the eighth, et cetera, you know, those, those standout dates that there's, there's at least some guidance you could get from, even if you hadn't even looked at the privilege logs, I'd imagine. Yeah. yeah. And we learned, right. That Eastman was the point of contact between Trump and members of Congress, uh, that they were trying to enlist in the insurrection in various ways. So, uh, yeah. So, all of that absolutely uh, uh, can happen. Um, what about and- communications with specific people? Like maybe yep. put, uh, uh, we want to see the communications between Eastman and Navarro and Eastman and uh, Caputo and Eastman and da 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 and Eastman and Congress member number two and Eastman and da da. Like maybe you could uh, sort of put them in, in prioritizing order by who they're between. Ex- exactly right. Again, those all of that information ap- appears on the privilege logs and the one six committee has those privilege logs. So yeah, absolutely. And and remember what they're looking for is a, a, are documents that show that Trump knew that he lost, that he knows that this uh, legal theories being concocted are bullshit and he does not care. Yeah. Well, we're going to see what happens. And as you are listening to this show, there is a hearing underway in <laughs> some of this stuff so that it'll be interesting, uh, the, an interesting show next week uh, for sure. We had a whole other section on some cleanup stuff that Biden did great for the environment and some new rules. I think we're going to have to push that until next week uh, because we had that Fusion GPS thing pop up and we had, you know, I had a lot of questions about how <laughs> this judge is going to get through the Eastman stuff. So we're going to save that <laughs> for you for next. But there's good stuff going on. There's cleanup stuff happening. I promise. Absolutely. No, this has been great. And uh, we will continue to uh, monitor for cleaning up on aisle 45. Yes. Until next time, Andrew, it's been wonderful. I've been Allison Gill. I'm Andrew Torres. See you next week. 
Cleanup on Aisle 45 is written, researched, and produced by Allison Gill and Andrew Torres with editing by Molly Hockey. Our art and logo designer by Joelle Reeder and Moxie Design Studios, and our music is composed and performed by Adam Orr. Cleanup on Aisle 45 is a proud member of the MSW Media Network, a collection of creator-owned podcasts dedicated to news, politics, and justice. For more information, visit mswmedia.com. Hi, I'm Harry Lichtman, host of Talking Feds, a roundtable that brings together prominent figures from government law and journalism for a dynamic discussion of the most important topics of the day. Each Monday, I'm joined by a slate of Fed's favorites and new voices to break down the headlines and give the insider's view of what's going on in Washington and beyond, plus sidebars explaining important legal concepts read by your favorite celebrities. Find Talking Feds wherever you get your podcasts. Hi, this is John Cryer, and I am hosting a new seven-part true crime podcast called Lawyers, Guns, and Money that'll challenge everything you think you know about U.S. covert operations and presidential misconduct. From Jack Bryan, the director of American PSYOP, comes the incredible true story of John Mattis, a newly sworn-in Miami public defender in the 1980s who has found himself completely in over his head. I step off the plane, and there is a van with a couple guys with Uzis. And one of them in broken English said, welcome to Bogota, John. Mattis's first felony defendant has been arrested for having a machine gun and tells Mattis a dangerous secret. He was shipping arms into Central America on behalf of the CIA. As a first-time lawyer, I want to act like I know what I'm doing. But with the help of a Colombian drug smuggler, how much money the CIA raised by hitting up drug dealers? A lot of money, millions of dollars. An Alabama mercenary. They were prepared to die to the last man. I saw this in them. I saw the fire in their eyes. And they made me their war chief. And a newly elected senator, John Kerry. We are looking at allegations of drug running, gun smuggling, conspiracy to commit murder and murder itself. He'll fight to free his client. The judge said, Show me, in a courtroom, how we were at war. Expose an illegal war being run by the White House. I mean, I wanted him involved, but I didn't want to be on record as doing it. And somehow stay alive in the process. I just escaped a kidnapping by the CIA in Costa Rica. This is Lawyers, Guns, and Money. So you have a man in Armani suit standing in the bow of a boat with a rocket launcher and says, if I lose sight of you, I will launch. You will be vaporized. Available everywhere starting October 29th, or get it ad-free and early starting October 22nd at lawyersgunsandmoney.supercast.com. There you'll find bonus episodes along with exclusive content. Subscribe now.